enter into our next sermon series, which is the Gospel of Mark. So instead of maybe just talking about the Gospel, and Mark is very specific in the sense of that it talks a lot about action, not just speaking, not just theology. So it was an opportunity for us to act and say this is how the Gospel has affected somebody within our church uh, and somebody's life specifically. So we wanted to share that. So uh, what I'll be doing today is actually an introduction to the book of Mark, and so how we would be studying it. And so you get this, uh, hermeneutic. We've used this word before. It's a big word, right? You know, uh, that was one of my favorite things is when we were at our old building. I think it was Eden when she was a little smaller, and she was like, you just use a lot of big words. And so uh, what a hermeneutic is, it's a method of theory or interpretation. And we do this with everything we consume. Most of the time it's applying specifically towards biblical texts and things of that nature. But, you know, a prime example that I was thinking of, like, more of a relevant one, is I love The Mandalorian, but I'm a super huge nerd, and so, like, I love it. My wife, though, is not a big Star Wars nerd, and she loves it. But we both have a hermeneutic or theory of interpretation when we're approaching it. And we do this with scripture sometimes, too. Oftentimes, I really like words, big words, uh, but I like their meaning. I like their roots and where they came from. And so when I read a text, I'm like, okay, what is this in Greek, blah, 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 blah. What does this mean? How does it translate and stuff like that? And so I'm approaching it that way. Other times, though, people are approaching, okay, forget what the word is. What does this mean? And so Mark does this naturally in a lot of ways. And so we're kind of going to go into that a little bit, but not too much, just going to have a background of Mark. And then next week, Chris is actually going to take us into the beginning of it. And we're just doing this entire sermon series for the entire year of going through Mark. And I would actually would encourage you, if you have the time, if you can get up early enough, to come to our Bible study, um, because much of Mark, um, you'll see elements of Acts kind of really pulling off of it. As much as Acts is typically attributed to being with Luke, Luke being the writer and things of that nature, Mark was kind of like the the pre-existing condition that led into Acts in a lot of ways. So we'll talk about that too. And so the first thing we have is authorship. And so we don't have a direct internal evidence of authorship. Uh, most, uh, the testimony of the early church is that the gospel is written by John Mark. So this might be kind of a shocker to some people that just, if you just read, read scripture and didn't have a background, John also called Mark. So when you hear this, sometimes in the gospels when you hear John being used, it's actually not John that oftentimes I think our minds go to like, oh, this is the gospel writer John. No, it's actually referring to Mark. And we see that in Acts where it actually says this, John called Mark. And so the most important evidence comes from Papias. This is about 140 CE. CE is a more of a modern term. It means common era. So it's kind of AD, if you're used to that, BC, AD. Um, who quotes an even earlier source as saying that the gospel of Mark largely consists of the preaching and teaching arranged and shaped by Mark. And so what this means is that Mark was likely someone that walked closely with Peter or listened to the sermons and the preaching that Peter did. And so his account was based largely off of his interactions with Peter. And so when we read the Gospel of Mark and we read other Gospels and we hear the John being used, have that question in the back of your head, okay, what John is this? Is this John called Mark? Is this Peter walking with Mark? Uh, and then also the idea that this is the beautiful thing about our faith is even before we had these Gospels, this idea of growing together, this idea of sharing the theology, the, the doctrine, the belief of walking and being around each other was happening. Next, we'd go into a more specific of John Mark of the New Testament. So who is this John Mark? And so it is generally agreed that Mark, who is associated with Peter in the early non-biblical tradition, is also John Mark of the New Testament. The first mention of him, Mark, is in connection with his mother, Mary, who had a house in, house in Jerusalem that served as a meeting place for believers. 
This is in Acts 12. And so this is what I was talking about. Like when you really read Acts, there's a lot of stuff, even though it was written by Luke, there's a lot of stuff within this that points us to the direction of how to interpret Mark. And so we're going to kind of go down this little story of this John called Mark. And so the next instance that we have is that when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch from Jerusalem after a famine visit, Mark accompanied them. That can also be found in Acts. Then we have Mark next appears as helper to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Again, Acts 13. But he deserted them in Perga and then he to return to Jerusalem. And this is kind of interesting. So he left to go to Jerusalem, and Paul doesn't like this. Paul is kind of irritated. So even in the early church, we're having this conflict. Uh, and Paul later comes around, or maybe Paul was even in the right. Maybe Mark comes around. But we have this happening even in the early church. And so Paul must have been deeply disappointed with Mark's actions on this occasion because when Barnabas proposed taking Mark on a second journey, Paul just was like, nope, not doing it. Uh, and it actually uh, broke up their working relationship. And you can see this happening in Acts 15. And then Barnabas took Mark, who was his cousin, which we find in Colossians 4.10, and departed for, for Cyprus. Later on, we actually have no further mention of either of them in the book of Acts. So we kind of have like this conflict that happens, and it's just like, okay, how did this resolve? Does it resolve? And it does, but it just it doesn't happen in Acts. We actually see it in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which he was written from Rome. Paul sends a greeting uh, from Mark and adds, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so this is Paul kind of like, we don't really know how it was resolved. We don't really know how things and restoration happened, but it did. And so at this part, Mark was apparently beginning to win his way back into Paul's favor, and we also see this in 2 Timothy. And so date of composition, um, I would hold, and a lot of scholars hold, that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a major source and have suggested that Mark may have been composed in the early 50s and 60s. That's not 1950s or 60s, that's 50s CE or AD and 60s AD. Um, and this is known uh, largely and is put into this idea called the Q source. Uh, and so what this is, let me go to this right here. I, for those of you who like color, Brent, I tried to make this uh, color coded for you so it could help out. Um, but the Q source is essentially that Matthew and Luke used Mark but had another source that Mark did not. Luke has also argued to have its own source too. And John was just kind of like off in his own corner. Chris did a perfect metaphor. If you watch Always Sunny, that scene where like Charlie's like piecing together everything and has all the strings around, that's kind of John where it's like everything goes together but it's just all over the place and he's just off on his own thing. But it kind of is like this, that Mark was arguably the first gospel writer, the first book that was written, or the first piece of manuscript that the early church had. Later then, Matthew and Luke happened to have copies of this, and so they did additions to it. And so the coloring there kind of shows how much a mark can be found in each one, and the different coloring is that Q source, where we really don't know what that is. It could be another gospel that we just didn't canonize. It could have been something that was more of a historical record. But those things are found both in Matthew and in Luke. And then the other colors, like the light blue and the green, those are things that are just specific to Matthew's audience and specific to Luke's audience. So this is kind of the, the initial interpretation how a lot of scholars take the book of Mark, is that like it was probably the earliest gospel. However, others have felt that the content uh, in the gospel and statements made by Mark and the early church fathers indicate the book was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 CE. So that's another way of dating this. And you may be asking, like, well, why do we need to date these things? Well, because that affects the culture, right? If uh, I was listening to NPR on the way here, and they were talking about the, the new words, you know, lit and things like that, or casting shade and stuff like that. And I was like, first of all, this is kind of dated. But, yeah, but, 
but, but it was kind of funny because like it applies directly to this, is that certain languages or certain um, adverbs and things like that that you may use are, affect a culture differently, affect the words have different weight and meaning. And what I really like about Mark and what we'll discuss throughout this quick little sermon is that Mark does this really well. Well, you may say, well, most like scholars would be like, this is so hard to read. Why sometimes his language and the way he parsed words was done so poorly. But what he does is he tries to make it readable towards his audience. So having an appropriate date really helped to see what the audience was. Was this the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, or, or what did this happen before? And so going on with that, his recipients, or his audience that he was trying to write to, actually, I think I'm going to pass the place of origin, yeah. Um, so the place of origin or the history, the, uh, the culture that he was around, uh, would have been that its regions were Italy, or more specifically, in Rome. Uh, these same authors closely associate Mark's writing of the gospel with the apostle Peter. Um, the above evidence is consistent with the historical probability that Peter was in Rome during the last days of his life, and he was martyred there and biblical evidence that Mark was also in Rome about the same time and was closely associated with Peter. So here again, we have these dates by people that were also um, Clement and things like that, people that were also kind of in the church, kind of part of church history, also documenting that Peter was with Paul. So that helps with our dating too, knowing that, hey, there's other sources apart from just biblical texts that are saying this is around the time it was written. The recipients, or the people that, you know, the audience specifically, um, the events point to the church at Rome, or at least the Gentile readers. And one of the Gentile readers were people that weren't Christians. That's what they called them then. And so the reason why we see that is that Mark explains Jewish customs. If his audience was a Jewish audience, chances are he wouldn't be like going through all this stuff again. They already know that. So he's trying to explain those customs. Another thing is he translates Aramaic words. He does it poorly, but he tries. He attempts. But this is one of the things I really like about Mark is he's really trying to speak in a way that his audience can understand. He's really trying to reach them and say, okay, okay, this is what this word is. Okay, let me paraphrase it this way. This is what we're trying to say. Um, he also seems to have a special interest in persecution and martyrdom, um, which were special concern of Roman believers. And so a Roman destination would explain the almost immediate acceptance of the gospel and its rapid spread. They were seeing this happen that was going on around them. So he was speaking directly to a group of people that weren't a Jewish audience in a way that they could hear as they're seeing this martyrdom and stuff happening. And so what's the purpose? Why would he be writing during this time? You know, why is it years after, you know, Christ is resurrected and things like that? Well, since uh, the gospel is traditionally associated with Rome, it may have been occasioned by the persecution of the Roman church in the period of 64 to 67 CE. The famous fire in Rome in 64 CE, probably set by Nero himself, but blamed on Christians, resulted in widespread persecution. So the, the importance of writing this gospel was to bring hope during this persecution, during this martyrdom, was to provide this encouragement. I mean, today, we are so blessed that we have scripture. We have a canon, not just a canon that is in its original language, but is translated that we can read. Like, and really, like that's the only cost we have in our faith. Like, this early church is getting persecuted, and this guy's, you know what we should do during per persecution? I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to talk about the gospel stories. I'm going to talk about my journeys with Peter, and I'm going to talk about what this Jesus did. And so he's, like, pretty much putting a red flag right on him, saying, like, yep, I'm going to keep sharing this. But that was a way of encouraging, a way of sharing the thing, but also having consistency and unity as to what was believed. 
And honestly, that's probably what was really good if it was the first gospel to be shared because it was readable. Anybody could pick it up and be like, okay, I get that. Uh, the other thing is martyrdom uh, was not unknown among Roman believers. Mark may be writing this to prepare his readers for such suffering by placing them before the life of the Lord, saying that this God that you follow also went through this. This God that I'm calling you to worship and to praise and to be transformed by also went through this. That it's not some fake God, it's not some king, it's not some ruler that you can be like, oh, must be easy to believe that you're a God or must be easy to believe in those gods because life is great for you. No, their God is one that's a servant. Our God is one, the one that Mark is professing, is one that walks with us. And so Mark focuses a lot on the humanity of Christ whilst also saying that he's a God. He really wants to drive that home, is that like this isn't a God that just stands above everybody and just tells you what to do, but it's a God that walks with you and can relate to us. There are also many references, both explicit and veiled, to suffering and discipleship throughout the gospel. There's this kind of this ongoing pattern, right, that oftentimes we hear the word suffering we associate as being like this connotative word or a negative word that like, well, suffering is just bad. When in fact, you know, even the earliest accounts we have where Adam says, I'm lonely, it's through that idea of him being lonely and not having something and desiring something that he does what? He turns to God. This is also what we've talked about in the past too, is that on the cross, you know, where grace and mercy was poured out and sin was conquered, that's the prime pinnacle of suffering. And so if you want to see God in the world, you have to be willing to go where he is. If that's where Christ was, we've got to be there too. And Mark is writing towards an audience that is enduring this. And even the Roman citizens can be like, yeah, they're right. This isn't easy. Why are you believing this again? Because, like, I just killed your buddy over there, but you're still going to tell me that you believe in this Jesus guy? You're still going to tell me that you forgive me and that you should have mercy? Like, your perspective changes when you realize the cost. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just a Jesus fish. Like, you wearing something like that, you potentially having the gospel could lead to your martyrdom, could lead to your death. Like, there is a cost to this, and just how quickly we're just like, well, I don't like knowing the scripture. I don't like knowing a background. I don't like knowing an audience. I don't like applying this to my life. Like, that's the only cost we have. Like, the biggest amount of persecution that I may face is someone be like, hey, can you stop talking about Jesus? Like, this is supposed to be like, you know, a non-religious area, and be like, okay. That's really the only persecution I'm gonna face. Meanwhile, there's other religions, like even yesterday, we have Jewish tradition that's being attacked again. That's persecution. That's suffering. You know, but they're still gathering. They're still extending mercy. So what does that say about us? We hold ourselves that we have the right faith. We hold ourselves that we are professing the right gospel. But are we acting that way? Are we living acts of mercy, of grace, of love? Does the world look at us and say, you know what? Your gospel's worth following. And so the emphasis and the things that um, kind of the main themes that Mark will focus on is the cross. He does this a lot. Both the human cause and the divine necessity of the cross are emphasized by Mark. So the idea of that, this idea of that suffering and that God would, um, both as a human and as a deity, as a God, would suffer on our behalf and cover our sins. Um, and the divine necessity, I really like the, the wording that was used in the commentary where I pulled that from, because like God could have saved us another way. He could have done something else apart from the cross. I don't know what that is. I can't say what that is. But that's the way he did it. But it's a divine necessity because he demanded it of himself. He willed it of himself. It wasn't because of anything we did or what we said or we thought this was the best idea. No, he chose to do this, but also wrestled as we wrestle, walked as we walked. We talk a lot about, like, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. We talk about the 
um, resurrection of Christ or the hopeful eternity, and those are all very great and important things. Those are dogmatic things when we do communion, but we forget that like Christ lived for 30 years, you know, 30 plus. He walked as us. He lived a life. It wasn't just a, like, okay, I can relate to that. Okay, bye. Now I'm going to cover your sins. Like, no, he suffered as we suffer. He walks as we walk. He grows as we grow. And so with that, in that growth, discipleship is very important. And so there's special attention should be paid to the passages on discipleship that arise from Jesus' prediction of his passion, of this death that's going to come, of this sacrifice that's going to come. You know, all these early disciples were later martyred off. But that's something to keep in mind, too, as we wrestle with discipling the people around us and growing as a church and growing as believers and just growing as family. Like, Jesus, probably the best example of what it is to follow God, his disciples for like three and a half years still didn't get it. Like, they're just like, Nah, or they just like rejected him and God still wants to use that and so like they literally walked with God and like there's still a struggle there and so Mark focuses on this this discipleship process this growth and you know the need for the Holy Spirit that would come later on in Acts the next would be his teachings of Jesus and although Mark records fewer actual teachings of Jesus than any other gospel uh, there's a remarkable emphasis on Jesus's teacher the words teacher, teach, and teaching, and rabbi applied to Jesus and Mark 39 times. So he has the least amount of teachings, but he really wants to focus on, like, hey, this guy was the teacher. This was the rabbi. This is the person we followed. Discipleship's important, but also because he's this teacher and he set the example, he's pointing towards that audience of martyrdom and persecution that follows suit. We have the Messianic secret, um, which kind of just a fancy way of saying on several occasions Jesus warns his disciples or others to keep silent about who he is or what he has done this idea that those have ears to hear and things like that it's not meant for everybody here it's not meant for everyone to accept and we have to keep that in mind as we go into the world and as we spend time sometimes the only thing that people may receive from us is the love and the actions like Mark pushes for that we that we do and he really also points to the Son of God. So again, here's this humanity aspect, right? The Not everybody can know this, but the people that do follow, love, go and do. But then there's the Son of God aspect that he, although Mark emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, he does not neglect the deity of God. He's also trying to say he is set apart. He is above us. You know, as much as he's like us and serves us and lowered himself, there is this idea that he should be praised and he is in a kind of like a, a league all on his own that we can't really relate to. And lastly, the special characteristics of Mark or some of the uniqueness in Mark is that Mark's gospel is simple. It's brief, it's unadorned, yet vivid accounts of Jesus' ministry, emphasizing more what Jesus did than what he said. Mark moves quickly from one episode in Jesus' life of ministry to another, often using the adverb immediately. So it'll say this happened, then immediately this happened. The book as a whole is characterized as the beginning of the gospel. Uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ comprise the beginning, so the gospel story, of which the apostolic preaching and acts is the continuation. So this is what I meant earlier about like coming to Sunday school might be really beneficial when going through Mark, because you're going to see how a lot of the stuff was kind of carried out later on, uh, and also how it brings kind of more fruition to Mark and our understanding Mark a little better. And so our takeaway, our why did we discuss this? Why would we have an intro into a you know gospel story? Well, it's this: is that in our own lives, know your audience. You know, speak in a way like Mark that the people around you can understand. And versely, know when not to speak, when to be quiet, when there's not ears to hear. The other thing that we can learn from just this intro and understanding the, the intent of the Gospel of Mark is act and do so with urgency. 
Be the hope and change we so often demand from each other. Don't wait on someone else to do this. And this isn't to call you out, uh, Lauren, but this was one of the most beautiful things that I saw. It was after we did our Christmas Eve service, and that's why I have cookies and skaters. I'm dating myself with Skater Boy, you know. But uh, I have cookies and skaters. Is there's these skateboarders that, after our Christmas Eve stories, they were walking around town. And uh, granted, my initial thought is like, oh, these, these kids trying to skateboard, they just hold their skateboards. They don't even ride on their skateboards. I don't even give them the time of day. They're not skateboarders. It's like, yeah, man, I'll pop a kickflip, you know, do a pop, shove it, do something. You know, my inner Tony Hawk, all the soundtracks coming to me. And then, so I'm like making this judgment of just like, oh, skater kids, I'm skateboarding. And Lauren's just like, hey, you want some cookies? Like, that, but that is like, that, that's the gospel of Mark right there. Yeah, that, that, is the, that is the gospel mark that's happening. As I was kind of being the pharisaical people, saying, like, hey, these people, what are they doing? They're not even skateboarding. They should be better at that. You know, it's kind of like how the Jews are like, oh, you call yourself Christian. You should be better Christians. You should be better Jews. Meanwhile, Lauren's like, hey, I don't care what your theology is. I don't care what word you use. You want some cookies? Do you want to be loved? Like, do you want to know that you're appreciated and I don't want you to get off my property? That's the gospel mark. That is a practical way of speaking to your audience and seeing that and acting immediately and not demanding that someone else does. And so the thing to keep in mind as we do these intros and stuff is that scripture wasn't written specifically for you and me. Does it apply to us today? Absolutely. Can it change our lives today? Absolutely. But it was written towards an original audience. If we hope to share the gospel well today, it's crucial that we've put forth the effort to understand the original audience and the author's intent. The Holy Spirit guided these writers and our predecessors that made it canon. Canon is essentially saying this is the books that we put together to say this is our Bible. Uh, and now we are responsible to be guided by it. So what I wanted to leave us with is that transformation, at least in our language, is defined as a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. We are called to be transformed, Romans 12, 2, and the Holy Spirit will do just that if you let, let it. You find that in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. If we must, we must put forth the effort when interpreting scripture, specifically as we go through the gospel of Mark. If you do, I assure you that we will see a dramatic change and it won't just be in our own lives. And so the question I want to leave you with today before I pray and Chris brings up communion is this, is does the Bible and how you interpret it bless those around you in the generations that follow or does it harm? I'll say that one more time. Does the Bible and how you interpret it bless those around you and the generations that follow, or does it harm? So meditate on that, and I'll pray real quick, and Chris is going to bring up communion. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you've cared enough about us and even our audience that we have scripture, Lord. I thank you for the martyrdom and the persecution that happened, Lord, and Lord, I don't pray that we have to endure that, Lord. I pray that we would not take that for granted that would be thankful of the loss and the lives that were given just so we can read and talk about it. I thank you for the privilege that we have that we can speak it freely, that I can preach about it, Lord, and I pray that that wouldn't be taken lightly, not that my words be taken lightly, Lord, but that your words, your spirit-inspired words, Lord, that your spirit that resides in us would not be quiet, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would come to you for our thirst and not to the world, Lord. I pray that we'd find rest in you, and I pray that we would seek immediacy that we would wait on your direction, but when you say go, we go, Lord, and that we don't demand it from other people, Lord, but we are that change, we are that difference. Lord, I pray that we'd be like Mark, that we pursue you, we know you, we walk with you, we walk with people that know more than what we do, Lord, but that we share your gospel in a way that speaks to people where they are, not where they ought to be, 
not where we think they should be, Lord, but where they are. So give us grace. Give us mercy. We thank you for the graces and mercies that we don't even know. And may we be guided by your spirit, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.